Hello and welcome to the Yale History Podcast, a new project at the History Department at Yale University, presenting a series of interviews with historians from our department on a wide range of historical topics based on their research and expertise. Thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited to share this interview with you. I'm your host, Kelvin Ng, a PhD candidate at the History Department at Yale University. Today, I'm here to talk to Professor Samuel Moyne, author of the book, Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. Samuel Moyne is Henry R. Lewis Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and Professor of History at Yale University. He received a doctorate in modern European history from the University of California, Berkeley in 2000 and a law degree from Harvard University in 2001. He came to Yale from Harvard University, where he was Jeremiah Smith Jr. Professor of Law and Professor of History. Before this, he spent 13 years in the Columbia University History Department. His areas of interest in legal scholarship include international law, human rights, the law of war, and legal thoughts, in both historical and current perspective. In intellectual history, he's worked on a diverse range of subjects, especially 20th century European moral and political theory. He has written several books in the fields of European intellectual history and human rights history, including The Last Utopia, Human Rights and History, Christian Human Rights, and Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World. In Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War, Moyne asks a troubling but urgent question. What if efforts to make war more ethical, to ban torture, to limit civilian casualties, have only shored up the military enterprise and made it sturdier. To advance this case, Moyne looks back at a century and a half of passionate arguments about the ethics of using force. In the 19th century, the founders of the Red Cross struggled mightily to make war less lethal, even as they acknowledged its inevitability. Leo Tolstoy prominently opposed the efforts, reasoning that war needed to be abolished, not reformed. And over the subsequent century, a popular movement to abolish war flourished on both sides of the Atlantic. Eventually, however, reformers shifted their attention from opposing the crime of war to opposing war crimes with fateful consequences. The ramifications of this shift became apparent in the post-9-11 era. By that time, the US military had embraced the agenda of humane war, driven both by the availability of precision weaponry and the need to protect its image. The battle shifted from this to the courtroom, where the tactics of the war on terror were litigated, but its foundational assumptions went without serious challenge. These trends only accelerated during the Obama and Trump presidencies, and even as the two administrations spoke of American power, morality in radically different tones, they ushered in the second decade of the forever war. Over the course of our conversation, we'll talk just about Professor Moyne's revisionist historicization, the emergence of humane war, broader intellectual and political stakes of this category in U.S. foreign policy. Learn about those issues and more. Join us and stay tuned. I hope you enjoy the book and I hope you enjoy our conversation as well. Welcome, Sam, to the World History Podcast. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about your important work today. No, thank you for the invitation and it's a privilege to be in conversation. So can you start us off perhaps by saying a few words about how you came to write Humane? In the past several years, your work has offered some of the most important critiques of American liberalism. Your intellectual history of human rights, in particular, has provided a critical genealogy of this concept so central to modern international law and political theory. The present work, however, is both a work of intellectual history and of political commentary, remaining, and it remains firmly within this spirit. 
So how did this present work humane grow out of your existing constellation of intellectual interests? How did the idea develop? And what was the research process like? Well, so I've just finished with this book about a decade of, of trying to put so-called liberal internationalism on trial. And it's, it's really as a result of having been exposed to it and to an extent inducted into it as a young person in the 1990s at the so-called end of history when we thought that liberalism in its, its then kind of current form just kind of needed to be spread in, in sort of mopping up operations to any place that was still holding out since the Soviet Union was no longer doing so. There were a few other places, but that was going to be kind of a postscript. And what alarmed us was if war was a problem, was war within states, as first in Southeastern Europe, but also kind of in, on the African continent. The, the basic idea was that, you know, atrocity was something that was the galling final problem for liberals looking outwards at the end of the Cold War to take on. Now, as part of that, I went, went to law school and took classes in the subjects that I later tried to think about historically, and, and that includes the laws of war before September 11th, um, right before, when we, we really did learn about the laws of war as this kind of humanizing project that was kind of on the brink of, of a kind of greater acceptance than ever before. And, and we were invited to sort of join in to, you know, finishing the job. And so, you know, I thought that having written a lot about human rights, as you mentioned, I should write about the laws of war, which are, are separate as a legal topic, even if they overlap clearly as, as a world historical topic. And so, you know, I had the year off and, you know, I knew I wanted to begin with Leo Tolstoy because I, I already, I knew long since that he had leveled this criticism right at the beginning of the project of using international law to make war less brutal. And I thought, what if, what if I tell the, the history of the laws of war from his perspective, as well as from the perspective of colonial peoples, and then understand what's at stake in this present humanization? And so I, it's, a lot of research went in, but aside from the chapter on Vietnam, very little kind of archival research. And so I was able to do it just by kind of reading as widely as I could and putting together a kind of synth synthetic account, especially in the first half and, you know, a few kind of novel things in the second that had never been written about and see if I could make, the, you know, the war on terror and Barack Obama's presidency in particular, the kind of sinister end to a story that I, I once had been told would be kind of you know, salutary and uplifting. Thank you so much for that. And I think that one of the most poignant uh, moments in the book for me really was when you're recounting your history working as an intern in Washington, D.C., and really coming to terms with the reality of what was going on in, with regard to, to the war. And just to provide a bit of background to our listeners, the historical narrative of this book spans about 150 years, bookended by, on one hand, the siege of uh, Sebastopol in 1854-55, informing Leo Tolstoy's writings. And on the other end, the contemporary US expansion of the war on terror. 
geographic scope is similarly expansive, spanning peace activists and international jurists in 19th century, 20th century Europe, international lawyers and delegates from the decolonizing global south, through to the technocrats, ideologues, and political elites behind post-Cold War U.S. military policy. At the heart of the book, however, I think there's a singularly convincing line of argument, which is, and here I'm quoting you, we had made a moral choice to prioritize humane war, not a peaceful globe. So what do you mean here by the term humane war, which you know may sound somewhat oxymoronic at, at, at first glance, and how is it different from peace? So first, you know, at the heart of this book is an attempt to tell a, a history of this, the, the international laws of war, now rebranded, as I recount in one of the chapters, international humanitarian law, and think about their larger political function. And that determines the beginning of the story, because the first episode in that tradition, unless you want to go further back and talk about kind of unwritten law, is in the 1860s with the the creation of the first Geneva Convention in 1864. And it's, it seemed kind of useful that Tolstoy is it, you know, seems to directly comment, if not on that treaty, then on the project that it represented. And you know, w- w- what I wanted to show is that the dreams of humanizers, which were subject to a lot of criticism in the 19th century, much more open criticism, and not just from Tolstoy than in recent decades, came true in our time. And it came true in a specific world historical context when Americans were no longer interested in constraining war, especially their own war, but did kind of inherit a a cultural revolution in which significant elites demanded more humanity from it. So the phrase humane war, I think, is oxymoronic. I play on it because I think it's crucial if we're interested in, you know, empire or power or whatever you you want to talk about to compare and contrast forms of violence. And it seems incontestable to me that there can be something like more humane war, i.e. less brutal than before, even if still intolerable in its brutality and violence. And indeed, I wanted to show that emergent for a long time in the history of empire, but especially in recent war, is a kind of form of of not just less brutal but nonviolent control and domination and and that's why i think if we obsess about violence and how bad it is which is reasonable then we end up with a story that a lot of historians like to tell actually about so-called liberal empire and its unremitting violence but from my perspective it's not true it's not that it's better that it's less violent it is from a certain perspective it could be more disturbing that imperial domination can get, or hierarchy in general, can get reinvented in less brutal terms. And so I wanted to tell a story about how that has happened and that the war on terror was one kind of forcing house that has ended up leaving us not with peace or a constrained America, but on the contrary, a kind of permanent war that is sometimes rationalized as as less brutal than before. Thank you so much for that. And I really do think that 
brilliance of your argument is that it's not, it doesn't lie in exposing perhaps the contradiction in terms between liberal democracy's presentation of itself and the reality of its violence, but precisely in exposing that even if we were to accept its best claims as is, that that doesn't make for a more perhaps humane or more or, or better world, period. And I think it's here a central figure who emerges in your counter-narrative that would come to be quite central to the book is, of course, Leo Tolstoy, whose, young, whose experience as a young artillery officer during the Crimean War informed his subsequent turn to its non-violent anarchism. In his magnum opus, War and Peace, Tolstoy fixated on corporal wrongs and physical violence, recognizing that humanizing war could result in less humane outcomes. His insights were twofold, in, in my view, according to your book. First, humanizing war narrowed the scope of political imagination, and it actually encouraged people to tolerate enduring evil rather than demanding it to end total. And second, fomented the belief that opposing, in your words, the cruelty of a practice made continuing involvement in war noble. So Tolstoy's ideas here came to influence several figures associated with the peace movement, including Bertha Wonsat, James Adams, Kinsey Wright, Another really sort of prominent figure that would come to be influenced by Tolstoy's ideas would be Gandhi in the Indian subcontinent. And here, perhaps I would just like to invite you to walk us through some, what was the reasoning behind Tolstoy's argument here? And what are the political and intellectual stakes of recuperating his vision in our political present today? So it's, you know, it's very controversial in a way to begin with Tolstoy because his, the early version of his argument before he's become a kind of Christian pacifist and vegetarianism, very vegetarian, are, are is kind of unacceptable. He has his character in War and Peace, Prince Andre argued that brutal war is better. And that's provocative, but it's also a, a kind of speculation. And I don't think a very plausible one. So as you say, what what's at stake for me in the first instance is that he hones this argument once he becomes the, a kind of Christian moralist and sage. He does so through some comparisons that he makes to other violent corporal practices. And to get at those two things that you beautifully reconstructed, first, let's call it the advocates uh, compromise. And it's about what reformers are doing. And second, what, what we could call the audiences or beneficiaries bad faith. So, you know, he says, there was humane slavery, more humane when there were advocates, and this is true, you know, as I mentioned in the book, in the form of amelioration law, that didn't challenge slavery as an institution, didn't challenge property rights in human beings, but did work with slave owners to make their treatment of their property less cruel. And Tolstoy's comment is that, well, this risks entrenching the practice, and so it looks more, once you think you can have no slavery or less slavery, it looks very dubious to engage in humanization, or if you do so, not to control the risk that you're giving it a second lease on life. And the significance of that is that it's a critique of reform strategy. It's directly applicable to the kinds of compromises that humanitarian reformers make in our day, where they don't challenge states and militaries in having war, but in how they fight it. In a sense, it's a, it's a big concession. And you could ask, is there a risk of entrenching in this kind of reform politics? And then there's the bit much bigger thing, which is where 
Tolstoy advances this worry through an analogy with non-human animal slaughter and basically shows you people who think they're better or good people because they insist on minimizing the brutality of the death of the animals they're nonetheless eating. His point there is that humane war is something that could elicit a kind of moral error from at least a, a certain number of people who are so enamored of the fact that their wars are, are being fought less brutally that they tolerate them or even champion them. And I just think that describes a lot of liberals after George W. Bush, who kind of ran victory laps around the deletion of torture memos, but didn't make a peep when Obama reinvented the war on terror in a much more geographically expansive and, in a sense, temporarily endless way. So there are stakes to making Tolstoy's argument central because he wasn't exactly an anti-imperialist. I mean, you can coax him in that direction. He's not giving an analysis of uh, of power. He's not a critic of liberal empire as such, but he what I find of value in him is that he hones these moral suggestions about how it is that humanizing violence could actually be a bad thing, or at least involve some risks that we ought to control or manage. Thank you so much for, for that, because I, I think that it brings us quite nicely to my next question, which is that you know the book's primary historical focus uh, remains quite resolute. U.S., the United States, and, and its wars, beginning with the settler colonization and genocidal dispossession of Native Americans in the Americas, continuing through the U.S. Civil War and wars of expansion, such as the Philippine-American War, going into both world wars, as well as the Cold War conflicts geared to it, maintaining U.S. global hegemony in Korea, in Vietnam, as well as in several countries in Latin America. You argue here that, for instance, the Liber Code had never intended to limit the torture and abuse of colonial subjects, precisely because, in your words, the people were the enemy. And what I found really provocative here was that you were placing both domestic developments and the U.S.'s imperial ambitions abroad within the same analytic frame. And of course, you know, this sort of, this sort of conceptual linking of those two has been is an argument that has been made by such theories as Amy Cesar or Hannah Arendt. What is the import here of situating this history of U.S. overseas expansionism with that of slavery and settler colonialism? And to what extent can it be argued that the American tradition of war abroad was shaped by, by, the, by the, uh, its experience of slavery and the so-called Indian wars on American soil? No, it's a great question, and thanks for the careful reading. Since I, I wanted to take for granted the kind of critical historiography of U.S. empire and then figure out what to say about this emergent possibility of humane war. So my first move, as you kind of have implied, is to show that in a sense there wasn't a lot to humane war for a, a while. I mean, Tolstoy's worries were in a sense premature because after this 1864 convention on which he commented, I believe, there wasn't a lot to write home about for the Humane War Project. I did want to show how some of his successors, like Bertha von Suttner, were extremely worried about advocacy around humane war because they thought it could distract from the peace agenda they favored. 
in in kind of a Tolstoyan spirit. And I show that Tolstoy was actually pretty influential on a lot of other Americans for a long time, including, you know, men of state, but also more famous reformers like Jane Addams and so forth. So what I basically try to show is that much of the law of war that happens after 1864 is about brutality and military necessity and achieving state objectives, and especially after the Franco-Prussian War, about protecting soldiers from civilians rather than the other way around. But as you mentioned, the kind of the most glaring fact about the regulation of war is what, what we could call kind of the second track for global warfare, especially when waged by whites against non-whites or Christians against non-Christians. And there, the idea is that whatever the content of the laws of war, it allowed play or just, you know, was bracketed when global war was being fought. And what that meant is that there was no reason to worry about humane war because it just was so rarely being like treated as an aspiration, let alone a serious constraint. And ultimately, that does kind of get at the thinking of people like Aimé Césaire and Hannah Arendt, whose response to mid-20th century violence that whites perpetrate on one another in world wars by saying, but this is just what you've been doing globally. And so for that kind of trinity of reasons, like there's no prospect of really making war humane for a long time. And it's why there's such a big peace agenda, because it seems more credible to try to limit the resort to force rather than pick up the pieces. Now, in fairness, this agenda was highly racialized too. And you find Americans like Andrew Carnegie and so forth, like longing for a white piece. And one of the points of the book is to say, in a sense, that vision prevailed, that there was a Pax Americana after, you know, the Americans, you know, required a second world war to provide a European peace, but it also led them to be involved after the Philippines in a much more routine and prevalent form of global war than before. And, you know, my basic question then is how did that form of war, which was brutal like old imperial wars, get humanized in the late 20th century? That makes a lot of sense to me. And I I think that the turning point in your book really comes with the wars in, in the China. So the wars that were occurring in Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, but perhaps more better known in the American consciousness as just, you know, the Vietnam War, which catalyzed a pivotal shift in American attitudes toward the law of war. In particular, journalist Seymour Hersh's 1969 report on the My Lai Massacre, which involved the U.S. Army Company's murder of 500 South Vietnamese civilians, brought about what you term a period of clarity when people were prepared to see government officials and U.S. citizens themselves as potential and actual evildoers. So this resulted in enhanced supplements, for instance, to the Geneva Conventions in 1977, as well as the 1985 UN Convention Against Torture. In your assessment, however, what are the implications of this shift in policy, and to what extent were they transformative in the field of international legal practice? So it's absolutely true that this period of the 60s and 70s, I think, is ends up being very pivotal for this problem. And it does drive a big transformation of the content of war, and it begins to close that second track for justice, in part because 
you can't fight with impunity within your own empire or even across borders in the same way as before. And I mean, as I see it, the principal reason is that a lot of peoples that had borne the brunt of unrestricted imperial wars, including you know a lot of aerial bombardment, now have states after the 1960s and are able to force a humanization of the laws of war on paper. West Europeans are done with their own global policing and are willing to pretend that they are moral and stand for so-called civilization and sign on. And Americans are shamed by me lie. Now, I think that, you know, I raise this era in American history for a few reasons. One is just to show that the popular thing to do after the U.S. escalation in Vietnam after in the mid-60s is really to challenge the war and to challenge the legality of the war as such. And I try to show that in doing so, they were much more faithful to the premises of the Nuremberg trials, which Americans had helped sponsor after World War II, which prioritized the attack on aggressive war, not the concern about atrocities. It was as if war itself was a gateway crime that led to predictable other crimes, and you want to close the gateway. And what I try to demonstrate is that those who say anything about the law, and it's not like there are that many in the Vietnam era, are focused on kind of interdicting the war and not merely concerned about atrocities. However, the My Lai revelations, as you mentioned, have this huge effect. I think it's significant that they end up throwing fuel on the fire of this pre-existing, you know, anti-war movement and, you know, help bring the war to an end. What 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 my secondary agenda is kind of initiating a kind of comparison with what happens after September 11th when I think the priorities got reversed. It kind of in the absence of a very prominent anti-war movement concern about atrocity, like if you compare Milai to Abu Ghraib, ends up debugging a program of endless war and, you know, making it more humane without, you know, without stopping it. And so, you know, somehow Vietnam is playing a kind of double role in my story. First, in generating new, you know, along with the decolonization era generally, new concerns about humane war amongst different actors, but also as the kind of last gasp of a big organized anti-war politics whose absence after September 11th would prove incredibly you know, fateful because the, the alternative of humanization kind of took pride of place and, and ended up kind of, I think, in, in extending the war even to this day. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that before we move on to uh, the post-September 11 period, I want to dwell for a bit slightly longer on, on this period because roughly contemporaneously with the wars in Indochina, delegates from formerly colonized, recently independent nation states in the global south were in effect advancing arguments, pushing for the acknowledgement of struggles for what they term national liberation. And the other component of what they, are, they, were, they were arguing for was really to envision a more peaceful world with less great power intervention. How significant were these efforts at transforming the international order and what remains of these perspectives? So 
for instance, might we view the critical school of international legal scholarship that is known as third world approaches to international law as an outgrowth of some of these perspectives and arguments, perhaps? Fantastic question. It, absolutely. This is all connected. So I mentioned that the new states, so-called, were interested in humane war, which is kind of paradoxical because humane war, sort of like human rights, could become another rationale for the a kind of great power politics in, in recent times. But much more important to them legally and politically was constraint on great power intervention and constraint on force generally with with just a few exceptions and that's really important because instead of celebrating you know America as a peaceful hegemon uh, as some have I, I really want to stress that it it established a European or white peace that ended up kind of unleashing a lot of war and it was the new states in the 1960s and 70s and documents like the Declaration on Friendly Relations that really tried to institute an, a legal internationalism that would be about control of force. Now, they failed. They made their own exceptions, as you mentioned. They, they did want to make room for anti-colonial violence. And that also marks the additional protocols of the Geneva Conventions of 1977. But the, I think the main lesson looking back is that their, their legal agenda was beaten. And what survives from it is really not the constraint on force but, or, or like visions of impregnable sovereignty, but instead humane war which was not at the top of their list, but became at the top of ours because it's not something that forbids intervention. It puts constraints on the manner of great power interventions. And that's been kind of at the focus of debates about military force in our lifetimes, not whether they happen, but how they're conducted, whether they involve torture, how many civilians die in the course of them. And in a sense, this is a a bittersweet achievement of the new states because they they didn't get their biggest agenda item and something that was down the list of their agenda ended up kind of being very central to how great powers kind of negotiated their path to endless war. Thank you so much for, for the answer. And one other question that I have about, about this period. So if we were to think about this period that occurs between the end of the wars in Indochina and the start of the war on terror. Another sort of big historical change that historians would perhaps identify this moment with would be the ascendance of neoliberalism as a sort of political economic ideology involving you know, the restructuring of capitalism, structural adjustment programs, as well as market-oriented reform policies that range from, for instance, the elimination of price controls, the deregulation of capital market, the lowering of trade barriers, privatization historically. In your view, is there a connection between these political economic shifts more globally with the ascendance of humane war as a rubric with which to make sense of warfare and violence in international legal thought? I mean, I'm sure there is, just the chronology fits, and, and that means that there has to be some something to say. Actually, it's in prior work, notably my last book called Not Enough human rights in an unequal world, that I really focus on the new state's economic agenda at the time of, of these concerns about control of force and humane war. And of course, that kind of places 
their agenda in a, in a much broader perspective and emphasizes that their goal of so-called welfare world, kind of global redistributive institutions. And getting from there and even acknowledging the massive pushback that their legal agenda received to the kinds of wars we see later is tempting, but you know, also elusive. I do talk a lot in this book about the reformation of you know foreign policy ideologies as kind of liberals clamp down on the anti-war politics that remained strong into the 1970s and how Democrats in, in that party end up, whether they become neocons and leave the party altogether, at least until recently, or they stay within the party and try and invent something called liberal internationalism, liberal internationalism, really are trying to push back against the the possibility that America could disengage from the kinds of global war that the early Cold War saw and saw. And, you know, they succeed. Whether their wars are connected to a neoliberal project, though the chronology is right, I think is very hard to say. I think it's worth researching. I don't know of any very plausible account that has established that connection. And there are interesting facts, like just as an example in the book, I talk about how in the 1980s, the neoconservatives in particular were very kind of outraged by the humane war project because it seemed like it was a kind of pro-terrorist move. That's how they portray it. But whether you can then kind of, you know, make the specific connections is not something I tried to do. But as I say, it's a great question because it's, it's, the chronology is close enough that it seems like tantalizing to seek them. So here we arrive at the initiation, uh, the initiation of uh, the war on terror after September 11, 2001, which you describe as, quote, an endless war legitimated only by its pretensions to be humane war. The revelation of the torture memos and prisoner abuse at Abu Ghraib was subjected to intense criticism, but ultimately functioned as scenes of exception that normalized the conduct of human warfare. And when I was reading these final few chapters of your book, what it really reminded me of was, in a strange way, actually Sigmund Freud's writings on war right after World War One, where for Freud, warfare is the repository of a precarious form of self-idealization for narcissists. It's precisely because war is so brutal, so awful, that we invest in the belief that it can be the bearer of civilization to all peoples, that warfare must be civilized in its conduct and civilized in its aims. And in more psychoanalytic terms, perhaps, you might say that Narcissism really comes out of the extent of the internal damage that narcissists are battling to to repair. So this comes out of Sigmund Freud's um, the disillusionment of the war in his volume Thoughts for the uh, Thoughts for the Time on War and Death, and this really reminded me of how uh, in the wake of the scandals at Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo Bay, that the state will rush to individualize these acts and to sort of attribute them to the citizen precisely as could individual disgrace. As Freud writes, a belligerent state permits itself every such misdeed, every act of violence, as would disgrace the individual. The U.S., in your words, in effect, has ushered in a new form of territorially expansive, temporally endless warfare, resulting in the massive loss of civilian life abroad and a vast surveillance apparatus at home, 
all under the claim of humane war. So to be sure, how far can we accept this claim of humanity at face value? Especially because, as you point out as well, that these post-9-11 wars have resulted in countless deaths, displacements, and led to you know, the wholesale economic, political, and social devastation of large swaths of the globe. Well, what a terrific question. And I think, you know, the Freud, the Freudian ideas are very much worth pursuing. I do mention Thoughts for the Times in the book just because he refers directly to international law in the midst of World War I, reasonably concludes that it's kind of a sham. What I think forces me to take some distance on Freud, and I actually wrote about this in the LR, LA Review of Books in a piece, I think, that I entitled something like Thoughts for the Times on War with Less Death, is that, you know, Freud's Freud's emphasis is on aggression and 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 physical violence, kind of like in Tolstoy's own kind of framing. And and what I wanted to do that's new is not kind of ignore the genuine and intolerable violence that has gone on in the name of various ends and behind the cloak of humanity after September 11th, but to acknowledge that, you know, there, there are two really important novelties that I see without trivializing kind of the, you know, the kinds of things that those prior figures were concerned about, namely physical violence, or let alone kind of ignoring altogether the way that you know, ideas of humanity were were shams and smokescreens. So the two facts are as follows. First, you know, after September 11th, a lot of us complained that the problem with the American state was that it was lawless. And that was reasonable since, as I narrate, the expectations of humane war were, were you know, serious enough that George W. Bush and his legal servants like John Yu had to bracket the law for really the first time in U.S. history. But, you know, my concern is that ultimately, like what happens when you succeed and and reimpose law or aspects of it? Because the law isn't necessarily good. It's not necessarily about prohibition. It's about permission and legitimation. And the fact is that law was taken seriously in, in, in the balance of the war on terror. And far from ending war, it seems to be have gotten swept up in its continuation. And I think that's to come to my second kind of big fact because of its content, which is calling for humanity, something that a lot of actors cared enough about to make it at least partly real. So notwithstanding the horrendous violence, you know, I I don't want to operate with a notion that it was unlimited and unbounded. Or that liberal empire is reducible to a kind of you know violence that we don't have tools to like think about in as falling in different categories um, or that's not amenable to modification and you know, so to my to my sense this is the kind of I hope original part of this book I'm not trying to deny the violence but to say what if it did get less what if obeying the law made the war more humane, not humane, but more humane. And at a minimum, that's important because Barack Obama tried to legitimate the continuation of the war on terror precisely because he 
claimed it would hew to legal standards that required more humanity, especially fewer civilian casualties. Now, we can totally, I mean, there's a large literature saying it was a lie. And of course, it was a lie. There was a lot of violence, too much. You know, we see stories in the newspaper even now about the ISIS campaign um, that focus on the horrendous toll of war. But, you know, the question for historians has to be compared to what? And was violence minimized relative to the past? Did law calling for less violence have a legitimating role? And I think it did. And so this is not at all about excusing what happened after 9-11. On the contrary, it's about getting right what we have to condemn. And that's why I come out saying we should care about law, but also the law constraining whether war happens. And we should be concerned about excess and civilian death, but not at the price of, you know, baking in eternal nonviolent control and domination. And so what I end up saying is we, we've seen the something emergent in the war on terror. And humane war, I think, is central to it. And we can only say so if we take it as something that's real and not just rhetorical. So for, for listeners who are interested, here I would also like to point to Professor Moyne's critical introduction to the Norton critical edition of Freud's Civilization and Institute which, you know, really has informed my reading of your broader corpus of works as well. And you make the argument there that the debate between the Marxists and the liberals is really central to Freud's legacy after uh, the publication of like, his works. But here to return to the book at hand, Humane, and you've really beautifully outlined the different stakes at play here in challenging the endlessness of these wars versus challenging their claims to humanity. And they're both very different forms of political argumentation. I suppose as a final question, perhaps on an optimistic or not so optimistic note, in a post-Trump era, what is a way out of these endless and humane wars in your view? Well, so I, I think it's a long-term project. I mean, I think for all the, the horror of, of Trump and his policies, the, his, his ascendancy and even his reign marked an advancement for anti-war politics of a kind that didn't occur before, you know, with the sole exception of, you know, one day as the Iraq war loomed, Obama's victory uh, caused the anti-war movement such as it was in the United States to crater. And yet, not that it reflected a sense of the, the toll of the war on terror for its victims, but enough veterans and others were sick of the war on terror to help put Trump in office. And he then, in a way, followed Obama by withdrawing troops to the extent that you know he could, while relying heavily when necessary on the shadow war. It's true that he his rules governing it, especially drone strikes, were not as humane as Obama's, but they were close enough. And Biden himself has then followed that agenda by finishing the withdrawal from Afghanistan that Trump couldn't. And we don't know what he's doing with the kind of drone war targeted killings program, but it seems as if he's both you know, engaging in it and putting aspects of it under review. You know, I think the larger issue is what about all the ill-gotten legal authorities that were granted to U.S. presidents, you know, especially since September 11th, which have not been given back. And we, I think we should be somber that 
there was a lot of pressure to deprive the executive and the military of harsh techniques like brut- like brutal torture but not enough not yet to constrain war making itself i think that's you know an agenda that is getting mainstreamed but it's early days and we also have a kind of pivot to a new cold war with china that could lead us to think of even the war on terror as a pretty peaceful period in between the cold war 1.0 and the cold war 2.0 so anything can happen i think there is a space that we haven't had since 1989 for raising fundamental questions about like the american state and and it, its geopolitical you know achievements and 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 mistakes and i think people who think that should kind of pursue this opening and see what we can achieve within it well thank you so much for that really sober assessment and thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of the yale history podcast thank you listeners for listening to today's episode in which we discuss humane how the united states abandoned peace and reinvented war by professor samuel moyne published by fsg 2021 you can find a book on bookshop.org your local independent bookstore and other outlets this is your host calvin ing stay tuned for the next episode of the yale history podcast